Well, if you would, please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 5. Today we're going to look at the entire chapter together, which is only 12 verses. And if you weren't with us last week, the narrative has moved away from Samuel. Thus far, we've seen a lot of Samuel. We've seen his birth. We've seen uh, his calling in the temple. We've moved away from Samuel for the next three chapters. And the spotlight is going to be on a sacred piece of furniture, the Ark of the Covenant. Last week, I spent probably a third of the sermon talking about the nature and significance of the Ark because I wanted you to understand and have some grasp on just the horror and devastation that would have been felt when the Ark is captured by the Philistines and taken as a trophy back to one of their temples. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. With the Ark of the Covenant, this sacred chest that normally resided in the Holy of Holies. Today, we'll see it residing in a pagan temple. And the question is, what will happen next? Will the Philistines be able to harness God's power and use it to their own advantage. I mean, that's what Israel had tried to do. They believed the same thing that everyone in Indiana Jones believed, that an army which carries the ark before it is invincible. And so what will happen once God is alone? Once there are no Israelite warriors to defend his honor. Once he's on enemy turf. Well, we're about to see the Philistines discover what the author of the book of Hebrews wrote. That it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And I want to prep you before we read this passage because... I imagine there can be a temptation. Maybe you're reading this at home, on your own. You come across a story like this, and you think, that's an interesting historical story. It happened a long time ago in a place and to a people that are very far, far away. But honestly... What bearing does this have on my life? What does this story about the Ark and Dagon and the Philistine cities have to do with me today living in the American South in the year 2023? It just seems like John's just getting up and lecturing on ancient history. Well, I want you to know that the Philistines and Dagon have everything to do with you and me today. I I hope to prove that to you in a moment, but before I do that, I just want to remind you what Paul tells Timothy, that the sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. These old stories can make you wise for salvation Through faith in Christ. And then he goes on to say that all Scripture, all of it, 
is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that you as a believer may be complete and equipped for every good work. This narrative is profitable. It's been profitable for me in my own study and I pray it will be so for you as well. So we're going to get to it in just a moment, but first let's pray together. Now, Father God, we do ask that you would speak to us through your word. These sacred writings are able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ. So, Father, we do ask that you would send your spirit to help us, to open us, uh, to open our ears, to open our eyes, that we might see. And would we never forget that last part, through faith in Christ. It is through Him that these scriptures make sense. He is the fulfillment of, of all of them. All of them are pointing to Him. And so, would we not just see moral lessons? Would we see Jesus Christ as we look at this text of a story that happened a long time ago in a land far, far away? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. First Samuel chapter 5, we'll read all 12 verses together. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon And both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. And he terrified And afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And young and old, uh, both in young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. 
But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So if you were to look back at the end of chapter 4, you'll see a runner return to God's people to inform them that they'd suffered a terrible defeat at the hands of the Philistines. The messenger says that 30,000 men have been killed in combat. The army, all the survivors have scattered. The sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, had both been killed. And worst of all, the Ark of the Covenant had been captured and taken by the Philistines. And again, the scene back in Shiloh is utter shock and horror. This is an unimaginable loss. It's news that shakes the city. And as we saw last week, it literally kills Eli, the high priest. But in this chapter, the scene shifts. In this chapter, we go from the devastation of Israel to the gloating of the Philistines. In this chapter, we're told what's happening behind enemy lines once the ark is in the hands of the enemy. And so they take the ark from the battlefield. They bring it back to one of their cities, Ashdod. And they don't destroy it. They proudly display it In the house of Dagon. Just like you, if your wife allows, might display a 10-pound bass on your wall. That's what they did. They bring it back to their temple, believing that Israel had been defeated. And therefore, the God of Israel had been defeated. And so this is a trophy that they plan on keeping as a token of their victory. And they put it beside their chief god, this idol that they call Dagon. And here we see something familiar. Our society is fine with your Christianity as long as it's private, as long as it makes no demands, and is silently kept on a shelf. You will be tolerated. So long as your faith coexists and plays nice with other beliefs, the Philistines will have no problem with your faith. Because they view it as non-threatening. It's a defeated foe. But the moment you say something like, Scripture calls that sin. Or, there is only one God one truth, one correct view, 
by which we see and understand the world. The moment you do that, they realize this is not a dead and defeated foe. This is a problem that needs to be dealt with. That's when the Philistines have a problem. And they'll say, we've got to do something about this ark. It's perfectly acceptable, I think we all understand this, to be a person of faith today. But start talking about the faith, the exclusivity of the gospel. Start talking about what God requires and what God forbids. Mention the dark depravity of the house of Dagon, and you're going to hit some rough waters in the Philistine camp. But up to this point, the ark had been silent. And so they set up the ark in the house of Dagon. And what happens? The next morning, the priests come in to perform their duties. And what do they find? The statue of their chief god is lying face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Their great God, the one they believed, gave them victory over the army of Israel. And Israel's God was found in a submissive posture before the ark. So what do they do? They pick him back up and put him back in his place. Dagon had fought. You see, Dagon had fallen and could not get up. His life alert was out of batteries. No one called for help. And so when his caretakers arrive, they find him face down on the ground. And this highlights a glaring difference between paganism and Christianity. In paganism, the gods are dependent upon humans. But the God of Scripture is completely self-sufficient and needs no one. Have you heard of the Epic of Gilgamesh? It's an ancient Babylonian poem, and in it there is a flood narrative. There's this great flood, lots of people drown, but there is a survivor, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce his name. It's one of those names you see, and your eyes just get big. I'm not even going to try, but he survives. He's in a boat. And at the end of his ordeal, he offers a sacrifice to the gods. And do you know what happens once the gods smell the sacrifice? We're told they gathered like flies over the sacrificer. I mean, just think of what happens at a picnic table in the middle of summer. The poor gods were parched and starving. They hadn't had a proper meal in weeks There hadn't been anyone to feed them because of the flood. And so once they smelled this meal, they swarmed like flies. And that is totally characteristic of paganism. Their gods need them to feed them, to clean them, to pick up after them when they fall to the ground. But not so with the covenant God of Israel. He is the only Being that exists in himself. There's a term for this uh, that we'll talk about in seminary. The aseity of God. Which means that there is nothing he needs. He is a totally free, totally independent 
being who needs no one or nothing. And we see that Dagon is lying face down on the ground in his own house, but the ark is totally alone, miles and miles away from friendly worshipers in the house of the enemy, and it stands unmoved. You know, that we see a similar passage in Isaiah 46, where the Lord speaks of uh, two gods of Babylon. There's Bel and, and Nebo. I think Bel is the chief Babylonian god, and Nebo would be his son. In Isaiah 46, we're told just how powerless and worthless these gods are. We read, Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These chief gods of Babylon are carried on beasts of burden. They cannot save their people. They can't even save themselves. Together, they are carried off into captivity by a more powerful nation. And then the Lord brings contrast by saying, You have been carried by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. You see the difference. He doesn't need you. Rather, he says, I will carry you from conception through your old age. I am not carried on beasts of burden. I carry my people. Earlier in Isaiah 40, we read, He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. You know, I heard Molly practicing how firm a foundation uh, the other night. I was like, please play that. For the offertory, I, 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 it's one of my favorite hymns anyway, but it, it, one of the stanzas, probably my favorite stanza in that hymn has to come from Isaiah 40. And this image of the Lord carrying his sheep from conception all the way through old age. It's the, oh, I think it's the fourth stanza. But it, it goes... Even down to old age, all my people shall prove my sovereign, eternal, unchangeable love. And when hoary hairs shall their temples adorn, like lambs they shall still in my bosom be born. You know, Dagon's people must care for him and carry him. But the Lord carries, he cares for and carries his people all the days of their lives. Well, they put Dagon back in his place and they do their chores and the day ends and they go to sleep. And then what do the Philistine priests find the next morning? Verse 4, Behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. 
So Dagon is on the ground again, before the ark again. But this time, his head and hands were no longer on his body. They had been cut off, not broken off in the fall, cut off, and then placed neatly at the entrance of the house of Dagon. It's it's obvious that this is no longer just a sign of submission. This is a sign of total victory. Having a headless, handless enemy is an utterly defeated enemy. In 12 chapters from now, we're going to see something identical. You remember David and Goliath? David says, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Then they meet in battle. David strikes Goliath with a stone in his forehead. Goliath fell on his face to the ground. And then this next part is often skipped over in children's storybook Bibles. David takes Goliath's sword and cuts off his head. Just like what happened to Goliath's god, Dagon. Total victory. That's what this is a picture of. And look at the reaction of the priests. They make a ritual out of this. The dismemberment of their idol is remembered for years to come. They start doing this thing where when you enter Dagon's house, make sure you don't step on the threshold because that's where we found his body parts. So just jump over it. They said that they still do that to this day. When they enter the house of Dagon, they jump over the threshold. Don't step on it. What should they have done? Well, obviously, they should have turned to the God who keeps knocking down their idol. They should have thrown the remains of Dagon in a dumpster, repented before the Lord, worshipped him. But they don't. They stand him back up. They try to put Humpty Dumpty back together. And then they add this bizarre ritual to their temple rules where you aren't allowed to step on the threshold. uh, how, How appropriate is this for us to hear? We do the same thing. Human beings do this. We worship something or someone who cannot save just as pathetic as Dagon. The Lord knocks it down to show our foolishness, and we pick it back up. He'll do something drastic. He'll destroy the idol. But we continue on in our delusion. Think of the 20th century. You know, the 20th century was said, like in, in, the, in the 1890s, they were looking ahead at what was coming and always... Oh, going to be the dawn of a golden age. The idol of that day was modernity. Man was evolving and no longer needed religion that could be put on the shelf as an obsolete relic of the dark ages. Now we have science and education and technology. But over and over again, idols like Dagon were cast down. Think of the Titanic the greatest ship that had ever been built. 
Its designers claimed it was unsinkable. Do you remember the words that were spoken by the captain of the Titanic? The captain said, even God himself couldn't sink this ship. Oh, the hubris. And on its maiden voyage, first voyage across the northern Atlantic, it strikes an iceberg and this unsinkable ship sunk in two hours and 40 minutes while the band continued to play as 1,500 souls went down with it. And then we've got this bizarre ritual where people will pay tens of thousands of dollars to get in a submarine and go down and visit its watery grave. Another example from the 20th century. In the year 1909, there's a book written called The Great Illusion. It wasn't published by some just just wingnut, some crazy guy on the French. It was published by an MP of British Parliament who would go on to win the Nobel Peace Prize. He wrote this book saying that there would be no more European wars. No more. They cost too much. It would be economically and socially irrational. We're beyond that. We are modern, sophisticated men. Written in 1909. And this was not, like, again, a fringe belief. This was common belief. But in 1914, the impossible happened. It was the worst war up to that point in world history. And then, do you remember what the modernists called the Great War after it ended. They said, oh, this is the war to end all wars. Dagon was cast down and we put him right back in his place. Commentator Richard Phillips goes into more depth. I want to quote him here. He says, if we make a God of government then God will send corrupt and incompetent leaders. If we make a God of the economy, God is able to make the stock market plummet. If we use science to violate his laws, then God will make our technology a curse to our lives. Then he goes on to say, the odds of the evolutionary worldview prevailing indefinitely are precisely Zero. The changes of sexual liberty producing happiness are nil. God will strike down every rebel power with his infinite might. The French Revolution raised its fist against God and produced tyranny, not fraternity. 19th century German humanism did not produce a secular heaven, but the hell of Nazism. Atheistic communism did not produce a worker's paradise, but a slave's poorhouse. Likewise, secular, humanistic, postmodern America will not achieve its promised dreams and pleasure and prosperity, but only a legacy of societal ruin and lost opportunity. End quote. We would do well 
to remember the words spoken in Isaiah 46. I am God and there is no other. You know, so far we've only talked about Dagon, but what about the Philistines who are worshiping him? In verse 6, we're told that the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. You need to know that the word heavy in verse 6 is the same word used for glory. Chapter 4 ends with a woman naming her son Ichabod because the glory of the Lord departed from Israel. Well, where did the glory go? Well, it's in Philistine cities and it's against them. And Dagon is powerless to protect them. We're told that they were terrified and afflicted with tumors. What's meant by tumors? Well, in my reading, there are a couple of views from church history. Uh, the, the, first one, um, the first one is a little more funny. It's bathroom humor and it's funny. The second one I think is more likely... But the first one, common view from church history, what were these tumors? Well, it was believed they were hemorrhoids. And there was a man named Jerome who translated the Bible into Latin in the year 384 AD. His translation was called the Vulgate. And he says here, he smote them in the more secret parts of their posteriors. So that's, that's one option from church history. Another option would be bubonic plague. The tumors were the swelling and the growths caused by the plague. And, and if you think about the next chapter and what we're going to see, we're going to see mention of rats and mice that are ruining the land. And you know that fleas carry the plague and rats carry the fleas. And wherever you have a lot of rats, you can get plague. So that's another idea. But that aside, whatever these tumors were, those people who lived in the city where the ark was were afflicted with them. And so they start shuffling it around. The people of Ashdod say, we don't want this thing anymore. Send it to Gath. They begin playing hot potato with the ark. The ark gets to Gath, which is Goliath's hometown, and tumors break out on everyone there. And so they send it on to Ekron. But those people have obviously heard what happened before, and so they cry out, You've brought the ark of God to us to kill us and our people. Send it back. We don't want it. Send it back to its own people. The hand of God was heavy on them, and they broke out with these tumors, and many died. Well, what do we do with that? I mean, do you and I expect God to afflict pagans with tumors or some other malady today? Well, sure. I mean, do we really believe that there's room in the study of pathology for the judgment of God? Or is it just a naturalistic phenomenon? 
I mean, we remember that plague and sickness and death all came into the world because of man's sin. But aren't there certain infections and viruses that would pretty much cease to exist if people would repent of sexual promiscuity and intravenous drug use? They'd cease to exist. But do people repent? No, they put the idol back up and they say the real problem is stigma and we need to research better treatments. They're hopping over the threshold and ignoring the obvious because they're so bought in to their idols. What we have in the second half of this passage is a reminder of God's judgment of sin. God's judgment of rebellious, idolatrous man. We are the people who over and over again have idols we are trusting in. And when the morning comes, we are shocked to find that God has knocked them down. And then too often we put them right back up. And then he'll graciously knock them down again, showing us that they are worthless, but we put them right back up. But in the latter half of chapter 5, we have a preview of the fate of hard-hearted idolaters. Judgment and affliction. Morning comes, and the hand of God is heavy. You know, if this is a macro version of judgment, there's a micro, I'm sorry, If this is the micro version of judgment, there's a macro version recorded in Revelation chapter 6. We read these words. I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? You know, in 1 Samuel 5, you have the terror of the Philistines, the affliction, the deathly panic, the cry of the city going up to heaven. And it should remind us of the shocking day that is coming. A day that will catch the boastful, triumphant people off their guard. Uh, they will not have humbled themselves before the Lord. And on that day, their worthless idols will be done away with forever. And their idols will not be able to save them. And the terror, in terror, they will cry out to the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. Well, at this point, I hope you're thinking something like, What then shall I do? How could I, Philistine that I am, 
possibly escape this judgment that I so richly deserve? Well, Micah Newhouse knows where I'm going. He recommended Alistair Begg's sermon. He said he's listening to Alistair's sermons on 1 Samuel. And so I listened to 1 Samuel 5. I wanted to hear Alistair preach, and Alistair went to Revelation 6. And then, do you know what he said? He said, there's no refuge from this terrible God. Refuge is only found in this terrible God. Now, what does he mean by that? And again, y'all, I'm, I'm almost finished. This is important. In 1 Samuel 5, we see the ark of God all alone in enemy territory. But now I want you to think of Golgotha. I want you to think of God in the flesh, captured, brought to a dark and terrible place. And there he is set up, high on a cross, for the entertainment of his enemies, as a trophy that they'd won and he'd lost. But something different happens on that hill. The soldiers, the scoffers, the Pharisees, the angry mob of Jerusalem, they aren't struck with the heavy hand of God. They aren't afflicted and start dropping. Who's struck? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. He faces the terrible wrath of God due sin. The plague and the curse that should have fallen upon sinners, fell on him instead, on the holy and righteous one. It's those idolatrous sinners that he died in place of. And he did die. But what happened on the third day? What was the surprise that shocked the Roman guards and the Pharisees and even Satan himself on the third morning? What was the surprise in the morning that the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of God, was brought back to life and walked right out of that tomb? Paul tells us in Colossians 2 that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. By taking the heavy hand of God upon himself. By dying. By being raised to new life on Easter morning. The Lord Jesus accomplished the forgiveness of sins. And everlasting life. For all who would look to him and believe. So cast away your idols. And look to him. Worship him. Hide yourself in him. That's why Alistair Begg can say there is no refuge from this terrible God, but there is refuge in him. I'm going to end with the last couple verses from Psalm 2. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, 
For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray together. Father God, from opening your word, I do hope two things. I hope that your people would be struck with their own sin and their own need and their own inadequacy. I pray that as we read in uh, the Heidelberg Catechism this morning, that we would understand how great our sins and misery are. That we and these Philistines are not so different. And that we rightly deserve judgment. But Father, there is a second thing. I pray that we can all see that there is an answer to our sin. And it is the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is refuge found in him. There is forgiveness and there is life and there is grace and there is joy and there is satisfaction and there is fullness in him. So Lord, would our eyes turn to him and look to him with the satisfaction of him cause us to throw out the idols that we hold on to so tightly? Would we cling to him as our only hope, as our only refuge, knowing that he is our all-sufficient Savior? He is not a God that we have to care for and defend and carry. No. He is our faithful Savior. He is on the throne ruling and reigning. And he will carry us all the days of our lives. As we read this morning, no one can snatch his sheep from his hand. Help us to see Christ. And in seeing him, in beholding him, would we have and be given all that we need, both for this life and for the life to come. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.